This is a HeadGum Podcast. I've got a problem, and I don't know how to solve it. That's really, really vague, but if your problem can be solved with a website for some reason, boy, do I have a deal for you. Overdue This Week is brought to you by Squarespace. Uh, you can use Squarespace to turn your cool idea, whatever it is, into a new website. You can showcase your work, you can blog or publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, and much, much more. Uh, Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites. They give you beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Um, they give you everything. A website's optimized for mobile right out of the box. They give you analytics so you can see who's looking at your stuff. And Whoa. there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. I mean, at, you're looking at your website okay. specifically. <laughs> Um, so if using a website to help you make a website about your vague problem sounds like a thing that you would like to do, it does. You should go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial and use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. You know you wanna. I think to date the most, we haven't done a road recording where one of us is not in our homes for a while. But I think I still think the most bootleg of all the overdue recordings was our Jane Air episode where I went to a Radio Shack in San Francisco, bought a $20 USB mic, put a sock over it to use as a pop screen, and then went back to the Radio Shack and returned it the next day. That is pretty good. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Craig's on the road, and he's talking into a dirty sock for a windscreen. That's true. We will talk about (laughs) The Hour of the Star by Clarice Lispector, um, but I have merged uh, quarantines for the week um, to uh, spend some time with some family. Uh, We've taken as as much precautions as we can, and we are doing it for an abundance of mental health, I think. But I am negating some of that benefit by talking into a sock that I was wearing a scant 30 (laughs) seconds ago. (laughs) And then at the end of the podcast, Craig is going to tell everybody which baby is better, his brother-in-law's baby who's two days older than my baby or my baby. So that's the cool tease. Uh, you can listen to the end for that one. Craig, could you tell everybody what we do on this podcast, every, though, other than baby comparisons? Every week, one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. Uh, and you, the listener, get to listen along. You get to judge us if you've read the book. You get to thank us if you haven't read the book. Uh <laughs> Most people thank us for like, oh, now I want to go read that book, or great, now I don't have to read that book. Um, I'm sure you could thank us for other things, but those are the two most popular. Yeah, I'm thrilled to provide both of those services to people. And yeah, we'll do a little bit of discussion on Lispector herself, and then get into the text, which is like a it's a postmodern riff on a poor woman from northeastern Brazil. <laughs> like I don't, it's a pretty. There, it is a book that is in ways uh, incredibly succinct um, and kind of straightforward seems like a weird thing to call it, but it is not uh, a long book. It is not a uh, 
I wouldn't necessarily say it's multifaceted, and I'm not even saying these things as bad things. It is like, it's an interesting one. You are trying to get a handle on how you're going to talk about. Yeah, the I'm just kind of like trying it it's, out. <laughs> so it's if if it helps anybody at home, this is the kind of book where the narrator is one of the characters in the book. So that's apparently that's what I picked up from my research about it. Yeah, this was a um, Patreon recommendation. I should say that um, from Eric S. Thank you, Eric. Uh, thank you for your. Eric, pa- have anything to say? About yeah. Why this one? Okay. I do want to thank. Eric for his patience this was a, a recommendation from some time ago and I think like not knowing what to do with it kept bumping it off the list um, this one is short Eric says but the prose is really hard it's a lot less plotty so probably not as good for the format even though I think it's probably a little more interesting conceptually thanks Eric she's probably <laughs> my favorite Brazilian writer but she's kind of frequently passed up even in Brazil our literary scene gets so little attention probably because of the language barrier um, He had also recommended another Brazilian author, and this one seemed to fit just in terms of style and uh, covering women authors when we can and and things like that. So uh, I don't and I was looking at a list of Brazilian authors and did realize I did not really know any of them. So I was I'm I'm grateful to Eric for like nudging us and being like, hey, read this book. Um, and I'm in, I don't have the context for like where she really fits into the, the canon. Um, though she is, you know, very highly regarded and, and lots of people have praised her work. It's interesting. It has a lot to do with her background because she is both like of Brazil, but also not. Um, so she was born in 1920 and died in 1977. Um, she was a Jewish and Brazilian novelist and journalist, um, she was born Chaya, Chaya, Kaya, Chaya. Damn. I don't know. Might probably Time could be Kaya because of because it's she was born in Ukraine, right? Yes, right. Okay. So she was born in uh, Podalia, which was then part of the Russian Empire, which is now modern day Ukraine. Um, and as part of like post World War One pogroms that were happening in that country at the time, as the Russian Empire sort of fell apart. Um, she and her family fled to Brazil. She was just a baby when this happened. And uh, most of the family members changed their names when they moved. Um, and yet yeah, this uh, this move and the pogroms that prompted it were dramatized in her sister, Elisa Lispector's novel, In Exile. So there's a, yeah, a literary family. Though I don't think any of Elisa's works are quite as well known as, as Clarice's. Um so her parents died relatively young. Her mother, when she was nine at age 42, and then her father, when she was 19 at the age of 55. Um, her father, partly because of like the anti-Semitism and the discrimination that he faced um, back at home, really prioritized his daughter's educations. Um, and so Clarice Lispector began writing in school. Her first known published story was in a magazine in 1940. Uh, when she was just 19. And then um, her first book, Near to the Wild Heart, was published when she was 23. And yeah, the the reactions to that, like the contemporary reactions to that book that I could find were really, were, were praising both the format of it. So I guess it's very like introspective in mm, a way mm. that Brazilian novels were not at the time. And it also, you know, was in Portuguese. And like you'd said, like, I, I don't know that that, particular branch of like the novel's development is super well known outside of brazil so yeah like all the reviews i could find talked about the 
actual topic of the book and also its language, like kind of in the same breath. Yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. how innovative it was. Um. So yeah, the the so the the thing I said about her being of Brazil, but also not of Brazil. Like she lived there her entire like the first twenty something years of her life. She grew up there, but she was also an immigrant, and then. Um, shortly after that first book was published, she and her husband left the country to go to Europe. Like she was a, she worked in a hospital helping allied troops in world war two. And then he was kind of a diplomat. She had gotten um, his, she had gotten her Brazilian citizenship to marry him, I believe. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, then they, you know, she went back to, uh, Rio de Janeiro where she, you know, lived a lot of her life, um, a couple times in the next like two decades stretch, but a lot of it is just she and her husband and then their kids moving around Europe and then moving to Washington, D.C., like as part of his career. She did write that whole time. Um, and, you know, part of the reason it, it has been I read it speculated in some of the, the stuff that I read about her, that part of the reason she did have time to write is that she didn't really love this life away from Brazil, like having to do having to attend to like the political and the social obligations of a, of a diplomat's wife. Um, so she really, you know, she, she really didn't love this to the, to the point that in 1959 she left her husband and took her two sons and moved back to Brazil, which is where she lived for the rest of her life. So yeah, she is, she grew up there, but then just as her star is sort of rising in the country, she leaves and is just gone for a while. And I, I wonder if that has anything to do with that, the thing you were talking about. Sure, sure. Of like her. You know, with, 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 with people not really knowing where to put her in the canon, you know? Yeah. Well, and it was interesting. I was doing, you know, even just starting from like double checking how to pronounce her name. And it, it is actually pretty straightforward. Um, but finding some YouTube videos of like of the translator of this edition, Benjamin Moser, and some other folks who have translated her other works. And folks like revere her and have like really inhabited her work and it's uh, some of it might just be because there's a lot of short story collections and a lot of uh things that are digestible in the way that you can like fall into a poet's work um but it just seems like it's like it casts a spell on people who really dig her Uh, Yeah, there's a there's a subset of her fan base who just knows her as Clarice, which kind of tells you the (laughs) familiarity and the sort of like how close people get. It feels like Jane Austen. People just call her Jane a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, I just I read a few things that were interesting. There's a New Yorker piece I read about her. Um, and there was just a section that that pointed out how rare it was at the time, and still you know is to a certain extent how rare it is for a woman to pick up writing in her teens and then like do it for the entire rest of her life. Um, oh, like sure. how, how rare it is for women, especially women with children to have this kind of like literary output. Um, before Clarice, a woman who wrote throughout her life about that life was so rare as to be previously unheard of. The claim seems extravagant, but I have not identified any predecessors. Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, what else? I've seen some comparisons um, to to Wolf uh, in some articles. Yes. A lot of a lot of people who are interested in that type of you know w- women's place in history as 
storytellers, but also often being, you know, put into caregiving roles as well? Or, you know, how do you balance that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's most of what I have about her. I mean, most of her work, including this, I understand to be at least like lightly autobiographical or like drawing from her experiences or kind of ruminating on on where she was in her life. Like I, I read that this that um, Hour of the Star has a lot of like ruminations on like death, even though Lispector herself did not know she was dying at the time she was working on it. This is one of her last works. It was published like just a little bit after she died in 77. And yeah, it's my understanding. She kind of pieced this one together from a bunch of fragments of notes that she was working on with someone else. Um, The, the, there's a climactic there's a couple things in the book that are drawn from her own life experience like going to a fortune teller and like narrowly missing being hit by a taxi cab or like fantasizing about it or something i I have a quote i went this is her i went to a fortune teller who told me about all kinds of good things that were about to happen to me and on the way home in the taxi i thought it'd be really funny if a taxi hit me and ran me over and i died after hearing all those good things oh my god hilarious she does seem sort of hilarious (laughs) but in a way that is like are you allowed to be hilarious about that? Like, yeah, like really darkly funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you say you ha- you had some stuff on Moser as well, Andrew? Just to- just a little bit. So Benjamin Moser is the the translator of this. He's not the only person who's translated Lispector's work, but he's the the more recent yes person. Um, and yeah, he he won the from the Brazilian Ministry of Foreign Relations. He won the prize for cultural diplomacy. For his in 2016 for his work on these translations, um, he's translated in addition to Portuguese, Dutch, French, and Spanish. So he's a real language boy. <laughs> and in addition to writing a a, a biography about Lispector called "Why This World," he has written a biography about Susan Sontag called "Sontag: Her Life and Work" that won him a Pulitzer. Okay, so that's his deal. That's a good deal. Good yeah. on you, Mr. Moser. I do have some notes from his translators afterward where he uh, talks about Lispector being upset with some of the initial translations of Near to the Wild Heart. Um, she wrote to a translator saying that it had damaged the health. Uh, it, oh, the, the letters damaged the health of her editor, excuse me. <laughs> And she offered this advice. I admit, if you like, that the sentences do not reflect the usual manner of speaking, but I assure you that it is the same in Portuguese. The punctuation I employed in the book is not accidental and does not result from an ignorance of the rules of grammar. You will agree that the elementary principles of punctuation are taught in every school. I am fully aware of the reasons that led me to choose this punctuation and insist that it be respected. (laughs) This is next time I anybody tries to edit me at work, I'm going to paste that in the response in the in the Google Doc. <laughs> like, no, if I'd wanted a comma there, I would have put one there. Okay. Yeah, and uh, Moser says on the next page, her, you know, he goes on to say that like her language is is tough, 
um, but they're not untranslatable. They are not littered with regionalisms, slang, puns, or inside jokes. Her meaning is almost always perfectly clear. The translator must therefore resist the temptation to explain or rearrange her prose, which can only flatten it and remove from it that quote-unquote foreign aura that is its hallmark. Um, and I, I saw multiple references in some in articles saying that like even Brazilian readers or p- people familiar with Portuguese will have trouble with her sometimes because she is playing with language. Um, there's a really long uh, breakdown of some of the differences in editions of this book on The Millions by Magdalena Edwards called My Hour of the Star on Clarice Lispector. I will not go into all of that because I don't understand all of it, and we only have so much time to do this podcast. Mm-hmm. But it is there for you if you want to know more. Yeah, before we, before we get into the the book itself, yeah, um, I want to go to a well that we love to go to, which is Three Star Goodreads review. <laughs> okay, good, <laughs> great. And this is specifically about the the language. This is from Robin in a three star review, and Robin had had tried other Clarice Lispector before and was coming to this, like I think I think hoping to get a different side of the author to have a different experience than she had, um. And this is this is what uh, Robin wrote. Clarice, as it turns out, is still Clarice. And by that, I mean Clarice is a brilliant wackadoodle whose utter originality sets her in a class on her own. It's her signature, her snowflake, her own 148 pointed star. You will either love her or not. Uh, she's so slippery to read. I find nothingness in paragraphs that slide by. And I get this erroneous feeling that I could skip pages and not miss anything, that I could get to the end of her work with my eyes closed and be none the wiser. And then I read lines like this. Uh, All the world began with a yes. Thinking is an act. Feeling is a fact. I write because I'm desperate and I'm tired. I can no longer bear the routine of being me. And if not for the always novelty of if not for the always novelty that is writing, I would die symbolically every day. Uh, And I feel an admiration for her, even if she is so far away from me that I cannot touch her in all her glorious nothingness. Huh. Huh. Yeah, that that about gets to the heart of it good work um all right so we're done we're done here um so like the and i'll let you if you have any other ones to summon let me know but i'm i'm good for now but yeah i want i wanted to use robin's experience of actually reading the book to give you a springboard to agree or disagree and then talk about it for a while oh great like the podcast yeah, you know, um, I do, do have a conversation. I do agree. There are just some like some sentences and stuff along the way that have a perfunctory, uh, like nothingness is interesting because that's kind of what the book is about. But like a uh, a plainness to some of it that it does feel kind of strange, and some of it can like feel a little almost trite but i don't think it does in context so like for example i just randomly opened this not very long book uh and looked for one of the pages i marked and it's talking about the main character Maccabea, who we'll talk about a little bit later on um after talking about the kind of nothing life that she has we just get a one sentence paragraph that just says on sundays she got up early in order to have more time to do nothing (laughs) and it's just little gems like that um rhythmically have that same kind of delivery. Um, and then you get stuff where the author is talking. Uh, and by the author, I mean Rodrigo S.M. 
who is technically writing this book, um, and he is talking about how he's going to have to use words, even though <laughs> uh, words might make the story too ornate. Is this the the in story narrator? The in story this... narrator, okay. yes. Great, great, great. Um, and he says. Uh, so that's why this story will be made of words that gather in sentences, and from these a secret meaning emanates that goes beyond words and sentences. Naturally, like every writer, I'm tempted to use succulent terms. I know splendid adjectives, meaty nouns, and verbs so splendor that they travel sharp through the air, about to go into action since words are actions, don't you agree? I'm not going to adorn the world because if I touch the girl's bread, the bread will turn to gold, uh, and the girl, the girl wouldn't be able to bite it, dying of hunger, so I have to speak simply to capture her delicate and vague existence <laughs> what what <laughs> and like i start that paragraph because it's kind of rad but it also is like what are we doing here and it but it's also like man i wish i had the words t- to describe all the stuff and then uses a bunch of like very like circuitous Fancy yes. language to tell you about how incapable he is of telling you the story. <laughs> yeah, so there's an there's an inherent um, tension, or maybe paradox, or catch twenty two, or another term that could I you, think. Yeah, could you just list some more idioms <laughs> for me? <laughs> it's not an oxymoron. Um, you're an oxymoron. I am. You're right. Um, but there is at the heart of this book the the author uh, Rodrigo. Is mm-hmm. and he's the one who at the beginning of the book is like the world started with a yes, uh, but before prehistory there was the prehistory of prehistory and there was the never and there was the yes and you're like what are you talking about Rodrigo, and he says to the reader, hey I want to write this book, I I don't know if I can, it's gonna be about this girl I saw briefly in the street and now she is like wormed her way into my soul. And I've been thinking about her for two and a half years, and I don't know if the craft of writing is is proper to tell her story because she is someone who is rooted in a deep poverty, a, a poverty so impoverished that she doesn't know it's impoverished. Think about that for a second. Sure. Uh, that she... To, to write about her, to name her, to direct attention to her almost betrays the very reality of her situation. Um, and he, you know, he spends the early part of this book talking about how he isn't sure if he's up for the task. And so the, the beginning of this book has this kind of like attempting to turn the engine over quality where <laughs> he like talks about how hard this book's going to be and then tries to justify how hard it's going to be. And then is like, let me talk about her. No, but really, let me talk about how hard it's going to be. And also, it's not complete because you need to like think about her also. Um, and he sort of pledges that he will have changed by going through this this writing process um, because to actually capture her, he will have to have become a better writer or a different person or or something like that. Like, what is what is Lispector trying to? capture or establish with this because i mean i mean i would assume that a a writer late in her very lengthy and illustrious career would not actually be having this much trouble with the task of actually sitting down and, and writing about this but also there is there is part of you as as a writer in my experience that does not 
like I, you don't feel like you're getting any better sometimes. <laughs> I think there's like a, you feel like you're struggling with some of the same stuff, especially around like getting started. Yeah, and, and so the, doing there, it, you know, doing it right. There is that. There's like, am I, am, am I the artist good enough to do this? And I, I've always felt that way. Anytime I work on a on a play or another creative project, um, there is also the. And this seems to come from her like strain as a modernist, postmodernist writer that reminds me a lot of the Beckett novels that I've read. That is like, I'm going to riff on the medium of the written word and like whether or not the tools that we have decided make up novels are sufficient for this story I want to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I, I was in a playwriting class recently where we were talking about whether or not narrative theater does a good job of like discussing systems and and problems of systems and and the ways in which stories often have to like make character allegories for different parts of a system or else we can't like put it on stage um i don't really have a good example of that except like it's hard to do that you can't you can't talk about uh when you're making a theater out of people or a play out of people, like you have to use people. <laughs> you can't just like put abstract ideas up there without it getting kind of wonky. And this book mm-hmm. gets kind of wonky. Um, and then there is a so there is um, there's a foreword from another guy, and then there is a thing in this in this text that is dedication by the author parentheses actually Clarice Lispector. <laughs> uh, I can see why you'd have to specify. Yes, I guess. it says so. I dedicate this thing here to old Schumann and his sweet Clara, who today, alas, are bones. I dedicate it. <laughs> I dedicate it to the very crimson color scarlet like my blood of a man in his prime, and so I dedicate it to my blood. I dedicate it above all to the gnomes, dwarfs, sylves, and nymphs who inhabit my life. I dedicate it to the memory of my former poverty when everything was more sober and dignified and I had never eaten lobster. And that, she goes on for for another page there, um, but that to me is something that the author in the text also talks about um, at one point he mentions that he has enough money that his life is very different from people who are ever actually hungry. Um, And I think there's an element here of her like attempting to tell a story that is pretty personal or based on some very personal emotions and isn't sure if the person she is in the 1970s is like capable of properly conveying that. Um, apparently the book that she was working on previous to this one, um, I'm trying to find the title. It's in my notes somewhere. Um, a breath of life, uh, is a similar framework where there's like a character talking to the author of the story. So she, but no one talks about that book as much as they talk about this one. So she clearly (laughs) like figured out how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the end of this opening, she says, this story takes place during a state of emergency and a public calamity. It's an unfinished book because it's still waiting for an answer, an answer I hope someone in the world can give me, you. It's a story in Technicolor to add a little luxury, which by God, I need to, amen for all of us. So there is this like sense that the the kind of vague, oblique language, the inability to tackle the story head on in a conventional narrative format is all out of this, like, I don't know what to do with this character I want to talk about, which is representative of this issue that I am moved by, this intense, impoverished existence. Um, 
and I, I don't know what to do with it. So let's come up with a guy who also doesn't know what to do with it and we'll make him write the book. Mm-hmm. Sure. There, so like <laughs> once you get into the story about her, you still get interruptions from him. Um, about halfway through, it really hits a stride um, in terms of its style where he's not interjecting as much. And then it like does a full stop and he like in fiction, like walks away from the book and like can't continue for a page because he's so dismayed at her situation. And then he comes back on the next page. And it's just, it's stuff like that where she's, that is secondary to, I think, the language, which has a lot of force and, and is really worth, you know, the price of admission for this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where she's playing with stuff. So I have a couple of, can, can you pronounce her name for me? Did you look this up? Clarice Lispector? No, oh, the, the Maca- character in the book. Maccabea. Maccabea, okay. Yeah. I didn't know if you'd done it or not. But yeah, I went to, I had a couple of, other review quotes like professional review oh quotes, professional reviews uh, sent well not goodreads reviews you know <laughs> yeah not, i hear you i hear you but centered on the narrator like both a positive and a negative response to him yeah and his deal and yeah as part of a, either either to close our narrator discussion or to to give you something else to talk about let's talk about this uh so here's a positive read on the narrator and his role in this book Uh, He is filled with pity and sympathy for her case, her poverty, her innocence, her body, how much she does not know and cannot imagine. But he is also alert to the writing of fiction itself as an activity which demands tricks that he, the poor narrator, simply does not possess or does not find useful. At times, on the other hand, he is in possession of too many of them. It is hard to decide who to feel more sorry for, Maccabea or the narrator, the innocent victim of life, or the highly self-conscious victim of his own failure. Oh, God. (laughs) The one who knows too little or the one who knows too much. Oh wow. I had not um, real I I will I will confess I don't think I've fully digested the narrator as a character and that's a mm-hmm. great read on him. I'm very grateful f- for you to bring that to this podcast because Yeah, that, so so that positive review I think that is more about who the narrator is as as a character and then this negative one focuses more on him as a as a literary device. Sure. Um this is this is so that review I just read was uh was from Colm Tolbin in uh, The Guardian, and then this one is from a publisher's weekly review that doesn't seem to have an author listed. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, the author's presence is continuously felt. The narrator of record is a mere front for it, and it is here that the work goes awry. The nagging voice attempts to elevate Maccabea's little life to nobility and religious significance, but to no avail, and the modest commentary on novelistic method amounts to little more than affectation. I am personally, if folks have listened to episodes of this show before, they will probably find that I am uh, willing to give some leeway on that type of affectation and I re- see where I really it goes. Think, yeah, posi- the positive perspective on this one is is the you, and the negative one is the me. Yeah, <laughs> I, like you, I think you are inclined to see it the way the positive review sees it, but to understand the negative take, and I am exactly the opposite. Yes, you are like I get why people like this. I would give I would give it full credit, but then. Uh, convey that it was maybe not for me sure <laughs> or at least sure. or at least not a, not a thing that i would read 
strictly for for pleasure. I mean, the, the recording yeah. of this podcast, of course, is a pleasure. Every weekend, week out, always a pleasure. This feels. But, this is like both a very. Let me just stop. Let me break the show here and be you know be the podcast Rodrigo here and just say <laughs> that I feel like we are doing a good job of being kind of loosey-goosey I'm on the road I feel very unsettled and yet you are you are bringing a very prepared energy that's making me feel at home uh, in the grounding of the format of this podcast see and this is what happened is I came up usually like 20 or 30 minutes before the podcast <laughs> is my preparing time and this time it was like it was an hour before we had, we were said we were gonna go, and I was like, okay, I will come up and I will do half an hour of prep, and then I will do half an hour of playing the computer video game Super Hot. Yeah, sure. And I decided I will do the research first, just in case, <laughs> because I don't want Craig to get mad at me for playing too much Super Hot and not being prepared enough for the podcast. So sure. I am. I did do a full hour of prep, and I I am hey, exceptionally prepared. It is paying. Week. It is paying and off. Yeah, it's awesome that it's going good because now I'm gonna feel like I have to do this every time. You have played yourself, to be perfectly Ugh. honest. Um, let's talk about Maccabea because I do want yeah, to do to get into. I was al- I was nervous for the first seven pages of this book that we were not gonna have a plot and like we <laughs> we only sort of have one, but I was very nervous we would have none. And instead, we do get introduced to Maccabea, um, not without multiple interruptions, where he says, you know, he he mentions her and then he goes coming back to me. <laughs> I'm going to mm-hmm. tell a story with seven characters of which I am one of the most important. <laughs> it's like, okay. But he does move on to her. Um, his like thesis statement for her is that she was, she's incompetent at life. She had never figured out how to figure things out. Uh, yeah, just think about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she is a struggling typist. She makes lots of mistakes. As we learn a little bit later in the book, she likes to kind of meditate, but she meditates on nothing, essentially. Um, and so she ends up getting very distracted. Um, she is not uh, attractive. She has, uh, you know, she is very skinny in, in a way that is like malnourished. Um, characters in the book do not find her attractive. And she has internalized a lot of that. Um, the author multiple times tells us that he finds her charming and, and compelling, but he recognizes the... the the way in which she moves through the world where no one sees her. I think there's, he calls her an idiot or, or dumb. What is it? The person I'm going to talk about is so dumb that she sometimes smiles at people on the street. Nobody smiles back because they don't even look at her. Like she is a nobody. Man, this is like a, a Midwesterner going to New York city. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Ooh, that is good. Yes. Well, but, but it's, yeah. So this, my understanding of this book is is that Maccabea is drawn in part from uh from Lispector's childhood in the I think the northeastern part of yes. Brazil. Yeah. As opposed to the you know Rio de Janeiro where she spent a lot of her the life book, after that. Yeah, Maccabea's story as we see in the book does all take place in Rio de Janeiro, but she is from I believe Alagoas. Um, which I may be mispronouncing. I apologize. Um, But that's the region in northeastern Brazil. She meets a man named Olympico, who is also from that uh, the northeastern region. And there's I don't fully understand maybe what the like 
tensions between you know native Rio city people versus northeasterners might be, but there is mm-hmm. a sense that she is like looked down upon. Um, she was. Yeah, and I, I think that's why I bring up the Midwest New York City thing. Is I think oh it sure sure grounds it in regional differences that we have internalized already. I oh guess. yeah yeah. Um, she her parents died when she was two. She lived with an abusive aunt. Um, not a bug. Her aunt. I just said it that way. It made me think I I met a bug, and I definitely didn't. Um, I hate those abusive ants. Hate you know, they can carry they can carry fifty times their own body weight, <laughs> but they don't have to be such jerks about it. God, such show offs. Those ants. <laughs> uh, she does. She moves to Rio. Her aunt then passes away after getting her this job as a typist, and she now lives in a tenement house with four women named Maria. Um, she does like How do to you solve a problem like Maria's by sitting in your room by yourself listening to the radio. (laughs) Um, And she also likes to clip out and read magazine ads and look at them. Um, She doesn't know very much, um, but she does, over the course of the book, display like a curiosity about the world and about words and about ideas um, that is all very, like the author reminds us is very simplistic, but is noble or is interesting and the world does not have a place for her to actually you know engage with that um and he says her life is a long meditation on nothing she is so impoverished that she just doesn't like strive she doesn't aspire um she just tries to get through the day um the the plot that happens to her is that uh she meets this guy olympico at the bus stop and right as he's about to tell the story, the narrator is like, hey, so this next scene that I'm going to show you is actually like my cook threw away the three pages that I had written. And I'm just going to try to re- like write it as best as I can remember. I'm so sorry, uh, but here's what I got. Well, I haven't read a lot of books where the author pulls a dog ate my it's homework a- right in the <laughs> yes. middle. Yes. <of> it. <laughs> and, and, and it's like if you want to take the highbrow reading of that moment, it's about like. You know, you wrote this really interesting idea, and now you're trying to write the shadow of it as you remember it later. If the lowbrow reading of it is like, yeah, whatever, dude. Sure, you did. You sure you did it. Whatever. This is fine. Um, structurally, it moves into on the page. It sort of looks like uh, like a really rough script. Like it goes he she line by line with like hash marks, and then after a page or two. Uh, Lispector just drops the he/she, and you're just supposed to kind of understand by alternating who is speaking. Yeah, um, I think Infinite Jest does that a bunch, and I did not love yeah, it. Yeah, it takes some work, and like some of the language is really. Like sometimes you just gotta flip back a couple pages to be like, okay, wait, wait, which which line is which? Yeah, yeah. Um, Olympico's not amazing. Like the first couple of things he says to her are like, she says her name. She's like, oh, my name's Macabea. He's like, Maca what? She's like, Bea, and he's like, that sounds like a disease. Like Olympico kind of stinks. Um, I don't think it sounds like a disease anyway. It sounds like a like a kind of cookie. Yeah, it is, I believe, a reference to the Maccabees. Um, yeah, I was going to say it also maybe sounds like <laughs> Maccabees. But all I, could, all I could think about was a Maccabees <laughs> got to do what a Maccabees got to do from the Rugrats Passover special. Yeah, sure. Because my brain is broken. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
but your brain is here, so it's what we got. Mm. Um, when she it doesn't, really, it doesn't really help. <laughs> when she asks him his name, he says Olimpico de Jesus Moreo Chavez. Um, he lied because only his last name was de Jesus. Uh, the name of those who have no father. He was raised by a stepfather. Um, and she goes, I don't understand your name, Olympico. And she feigned enormous curiosity, hiding from him that she never understood anything very well, and that was just how it was. But he, little fighting cock that he was, bristled at the stupid question to which he didn't know the answer. He said, annoyed, I know, but I don't want to tell you. Which, this happens a lot. This ha- This is a thing he does multiple times, where she, like, attempts curiosity... And he's like, well, I know that, but I'm not going to tell you. Hmm. He's a cool guy. I mean, if she wanted to hit back at him, she could say, well, your name sounds like spaghetti sauce. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine spaghetti sauce. There's nothing wrong with that spaghetti it's like, sauce. It's like it's a step up from like Prego, but a step down from like a Newman's Own. Yeah. Or like a, sort of a higher end, more bespoke sort of. Yes, yes. Grocery store spaghetti sauce. He is, Olympico, a, he he calls himself a metallurgist. He works in a factory moving rods on and off conveyor belts, and he doesn't mm-hmm. really question where they go. He's very alienated from his work. Um, but he does sculpt things. He does uh, like to listen to, like, public speeches and have opinions about politics and claims he's going to be a congressman someday, which you know is never going to happen. Uh-huh. Um, and they just kind of go back and forth for pages, uh, their relationship kind of evolving, where you just really get the sense that he does not like her. You don't really know why they're together. Um, they keep trying to talk to each other, and he is just exasperated by the fact that she's a nothing person. Um <laughs> And she doesn't really know how to respond to that. The The narrator refers to Olympico as this, like, demon who has a self-possession and a vengeance for revenge, or a, a thirst for revenge, a vengeance for revenge, a thirst, for, <laughs> a thirst for revenge that will keep him sustained and help him survive. And Maccabea has this kind of waifish nothingness that will eventually lead to her doom, even though she doesn't even recognize a desire to like leave life um and it's like this is the part that feels like a book even though it's mostly just kind of them talking to each other meeting a couple of times what do you mean feels like a like a book like Like, stuff feels like a book instead of the sort of freestyle yeah and it's still got some narrative stuff yeah it still has some freestyle jazz to it but uh like it is it is characters are interacting and they say things to each other and then he is like you know what i'm gonna leave you because he says you Maccabea, are like a hare in the soup no one wants to eat you gee gee it's like that's not, that's not very flattering is no, it that's not very nice it's not a very nice thing to say and he's just kind of come to the realization that this that I don't know why he got, he doesn't even know why he was with this woman in the first place. And this is all interwoven with some more musings by the narrator of, of her not even knowing how much this stinks. Um, and this good thing that could potentially be happening in her life isn't even really all that good. Uh, 
eventually Olympico leaves her for her coworker Gloria, who is remarked as being well-fed and curvy and has a little bit more money and starts to kind of care for uh, Bea in like a Regina George type way, mm-hmm. like inviting her over for cookies and like telling her to go to the doctor. But and... it's not like driven by any kind of actual altruism. No, or not like re- interest, interest in Maccabea's actual... Like the conditions of her life. No, Gloria is like trying to make herself both like reinforce her superiority and maybe tell herself that she's a good person. Um, mm, mm, okay, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, she go- Maccabea goes to a doctor. Um, most of the characters in this book are, especially the like one-off ones that Bea interacts with, are like heavy set people. Uh, I think the the specificity of that is to show that they are not as impoverished and hungry that she as she is, um, because a lot there's a lot of meditation on that in the language of the book. Um, so you get this kind of portly doctor who doesn't understand why how this woman could just eat hot dogs every day, and that she has tuberculosis, and she's like, "What's that?" And he's like, "You know what." If whenever you don't know what to eat, just make a bunch of Italian spaghetti. And you look at me, I eat spaghetti and be- and drink beer all the time, and I'm healthy as a horse. Same. He literally tells her to go eat a bunch of Italian spaghetti, and I lost Italian it. Italian spaghetti? That's <laughs> lost you know. my mind. It was so funny. <laughs> uh, and then Gloria's like, hey, you know what? You should. I went before I stole your man. I went to a fortune teller who told me that this was all going to go really great. So why don't you go to a fortune teller? Um, And that is where I think the narrator takes a break to be like, hey, this is, I don't know what to do with her. I, I, the the stuff about, um, you mentioned one of those reviews, like compare, like endowing her with holiness or something. Uh Um, That does come up. And I will confess that like that stuff landed the least with me. Perhaps just because I'm not like, I don't know. The, the book also remarks on Bea not having a connection with God in any way, and so I found it a little weird for the, for the author to then like try to say that he was going to understand some holy quality about her by understanding her poverty better. Um, it it does it takes up space in the book that I was not I didn't know what to do with. Um, sure. It sounds a little like, like based on that review and based on, on what you're saying, like you, the reader, are supposed to are supposed to feel things for her and feel that that her poverty gives her a sort of moral high ground, almost like the the kind of I don't know the the kind of narrative about poverty and poorness that people in power use to keep people who are in poverty in poverty almost yeah well and and i guess the the tension is actually i think it's attempting to talk about poverty in a way that does not reinforce the oppression um which is the which is where the the author is fearing that he's going to fail i i don't i i i think he is like consciously attempting to display a poverty that most people find incredibly unimaginable because it it is so rough um but also does not like blame the 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 
blame per- someone in this situation, nor like if only they could just get out of it. If they all, if only they just worked harder, kind of thing, be- sure. because the narrator's attempting bootstraps. To, yeah, the the narrator's attempting to convey a sense that like she was almost the the like the fish don't know they're in water proverb kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when she does go to this fortune teller, um, who also is kind of this like big braggadocious woman who's like I had a hard life but I worked my way out of it and I worked all these sorts of connections and I you know worked really hard and tried a bunch of different jobs I was a pimp for a period of time uh, and <laughs> I was, among us, I was you, know? you know sleeping with anyone under the sun and you know not being shy about who I was and getting ahead and that like Bea doesn't even know what to do with that information um, and finally she gets this like tarot card reading and the fortune teller is like, Oh my God, your life is terrible. You have an awful life. This is awful. And the the narrator's like, this is literally the first time Maccabea ever thought that her life was bad. Huh? And it's, it's get, it gets its own sentence on its own like line break. And you're just like, Oh, you really well, feel it. You do. You feel it. Um, I did want to like leave space if there's any like feelings about fortune tellers that we might have. I know we have a, a our friend Chris like went and saw we when we go to New Orleans we go to get tarot cards read. I just respect the I respect the grift. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I respect I, it, it because it's a it's a and you know if you have feelings about the veracity of of fortune tellers and it's not just like about having a good time for you then sure this next thing well both the next thing i'm gonna say and the thing i just said probably is not gonna <laughs> rub you the right yeah. way <laughs> yeah sure but i really it, it is a special sort of sort sort of it, it's a way to re- read people where you are being vague enough that they can read what they want into what you're saying. And then also you need to be very attentive. You need to pick up what the person is putting down to know which threads to sort of tug at. So there, there's like a a specificity and a, a a dynamicness to the, to the vague predictions that I think is really fun. Yes. That's that's a draw for me. Yeah. I, I very much respect the, what I do believe is a lot of in the moment uh, situational empathy and signal reading. Because the thing, like the thing about Chris's reading that was <laughs> so funny is that the the person, like the, the fortune teller, s- started suggesting that he had a lot of like anger issues. And I think Chris just wanted to see where it was going to go so he didn't contradict him. Yeah. And so the fortune teller observing that he had not been contradicted just kept kind of digging in that <laughs> hole more yes and chris is like one of the mildest people i have ever known in my whole life yeah he may have kind of poisoned the well on that read a little mm-hmm. bit yeah um but it it is an interesting practice um, but just but just seeing how how the fortune teller observed that he did not push back and then decided to keep doing that like that's how you that is how you come away from a a fortune telling feeling like the person knew something about. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, so in the context of this book, it's hard to know 
I don't I don't know what uh, the narrator's perspective on fortune telling is. You know, we read that quote earlier that this is inspired by an experience. You know, this little scene comes from Lispector's own experience. Yeah, she went to a fortune teller. What was she doing there? Like, we don't. That's the thing we don't know. Is no, like, why was not. she there in the first place? Does she appreciate it? Like, I appreciate it, or was she <laughs> like into getting it? something? Yeah. yeah, more like genuine out of it. It's hard to tell because this fortune teller, you know, like I said, is tells Maccabea that her life sucks. Uh, she tells her that her past was terrible, her present is pretty terrible, huh? And then she's like, but listen, I do have great news. Your future slaps. Your future is wonderful. Um, you're going to meet... Because that's the one part that it's, if you're wrong about it, they're not going to like come back and get their <laughs> demand their money back. Um, because, oh, because maybe they were just reading the wrong signals or something. Um, she's like, you're going to meet this, like, dope Dutch guy named Hans. He's going to roll up. He's going to give you fur coats. And Maccabee is like, I live in Brazil, like, fur coats? And she's like, you'll wear them to, dr- to dress up. It'll be great. Yeah, It'll be wonderful. Just to feel fancy. He's going to roll up in his sweet car, and it's going to be amazing. And she's like, okay. And she doesn't really know what to do with this feeling that she's been given as she's leaving, which is... I was just told by someone who had very special insight into my life, who, like this woman, got a lot of facts about her right and things like that, telling her that her life is awful, and but she's also been promised this better future. Um, uh-huh. And so she is given the, like, uh, a more, I, I would say, like, a more common human experience than, than the Maccabea we've known up until now, which is this, like... in. Uh, a self-knowledge that she didn't have before of like, oh, my life was this type of suffering, but I will hope for the future um, in a way that I never did before because what would ever happen to me? Um, And wouldn't you know, it doesn't go great. Um, (laughs) Interesting. Bam, she gets hit by a Mercedes. Like a car comes around the corner and just whams her. And for a a few pages, the, the narrator debates whether or not she's going to die in a way that you are like sir you are writing this book you know you can decide whether or not she dies and you don't know what to do with this or you're scared to write that she dies and so you haven't yet which is i think really what ends up happening okay um there is a moment where like people finally see her on the street and like that's a very like sad ironic twist that like now that she is like a victim on the street she is finally being seen um and when she does pass away uh he says he says that she has killed him um she was finally free of herself and of us don't be afraid death is an instant it passes like that i know because i just died with the girl pray forgive me this death because I couldn't help it, you accept anything because you've kissed the wall. But then all of a sudden, I feel my last grimace of revolt and howl. The slaughter of doves! Living is luxury. Okay, it's over. And here's the passage I actually really like. The last stuff was kind of wacky, and I didn't know what was going on. Um, <laughs> With her dead, the bells were ringing, but without their bronzes giving them sound. Now I understand this story. It is the imminence in those bells that almost, almost ring the greatness of every one. And then he talks about silence a little bit. And then he has a moment at the end where he's like, okay, so I'm done with the story. I'm going to go have a cigarette. Oh no, I die too. Crap. (laughs) Then like, (laughs) uh, like leaves, like the last word is like, yes. Like he's accepting his fate. 
Um, but well, I, and also it's a cyclical thing because didn't the, wor- the world begin with a yes? Oh, dang, good catch. Yeah, good literature. Catch. Literature. <laughs> uh, I do really like that, like, almost rung bell or a bell that you attempt to ring, but it doesn't make sound as, like, a, a closing metaphor for this woman's life. Um, and there there are images of that type of power throughout the book. Okay. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, I dug it. I think for you have to be willing to to dig it, you have to dig it. Like, you have to... Excuse you have to me. get in there into the soil and look for the gold um, because otherwise you're kind of looking at a field. This metaphor sure. is tortured and you're like not sure where it's going to be. You don't really have a map. Um, so you have to be willing to get your hands dirty. Does that okay. make that? Hmm. Yeah, it does, I think. <laughs> you can't just come to this and, and just read it and not know anything more about what's going on underneath the surface yeah enjoy it at all i think there is there is a surface level of enjoyment from this book that can come from the the kind of uh dark humor of conversations with olympico um the like absurd details of some of like the doctor and the fortune teller stuff but if you really want to like you will be rewarded if you want to sit and think about this book more sure. with the the types of metaphors that are being used, the way the narrator interacts with the text, um, and a lot of the more highfalutin language. Um, even though in Moser's translation, it is not highfalutin. It is just like strange. It, it is. Yeah, right. You know, it's just, it, it, it is not. The, the impression that I got from researching is that it was not like complex it was just put together in a in an unconventional way and and all the way down to sentences like yeah it that the the inherent strain strangeness of the structure is also reflected in how a lot of the prose is written um which just means you have to do a little bit of extra work yeah Um, well and and to bring it back to her like fandom it also maybe sounds like if you had been following her work for her entire life and read everything that she put out and sort of knew the way that her brain worked, you might be, maybe you'd be a little bit more primed to know what this book was going to do and you wouldn't have to, you as the reader wouldn't have to put in the work to like understanding that because you'd understand it already. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I don't know that that is a thing. I'm you just, would... I'm totally guessing. No, like, no, no, I'm no. T- yeah. I, what I think, what, what I'm taking from that is like, she is an author who you have to get on the wavelength of. Yeah. And right. like, and I, I understand, like I have analogs for that in TV. I have analogs in that with certain like filmmakers where it's just like, this person is going to do this type of thing and you need to be ready to meet them there or else you're just going to be like, I can't. Right. Um, just going to be lost. Yeah. And, and, you know, I feel like a lot of people have that response to, uh, like, modern visual art, which I certainly understand, because, like, sometimes it's just some boxes, like, on a piece of paper, and it's about war, and you're like, I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> and this, this book is not that obtuse, but I, I, there, it's on a spectrum for sure. Okay. Uh, but that's The Hour of the Star. I'm, I'm very glad that I read it. I had a fun time with it and we had a fun podcast here today with me talking into a sock yeah 
the hour of a podcast. Um, also, I I cannot uh, choose between my nephew and your son. Um, I love them each for for their different uh, strengths. Huh. If you what are, can you enumerate a couple of the strengths? For um, people? I your son's head is bigger. That's true. He's got a big head. We have not had it professionally measured in a while because of the quarantine, but sure. it was like 96th percentile. Yes. Um, my nephew uh, is doing a little bit more cruising than I think your son is doing at the moment. Henry's doing a lot of pulling the stand, but once he's there, he doesn't know what to do with himself. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I've seen some like hand dexterity stuff that Henry's doing a little bit better. Mm-hmm. They seem on they seem on par linguistically right now. Yeah, um, just like a lot of syllables. I watched a baby hiss at a cat that had hissed at him today. Just <laughs> <It was> really <laughs> amazing. Um, you know, it I I I love these boys so much. They're uh, good boys. They're good good boys and it's great to be uh near one of them right now because it's it's been hard to be near them as much as I would like to in these yeah. times. Mm-hmm. So love the boys you're with. Bump bump is what I have to say. <sighs> boys are back in town. <laughs> Do you want to let's get out of here. Let's okay, go. great. Uh send us an email about your favorite Thin Lizzy song to overduepod at gmail.com. <laughs> Hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at OverduePod. Thanks to Chris, Yeti, Hannah, Ingrid, Nadia, Emily, Kat, Ben, Sherry, Liam, Adam, Ashley, and many more for reaching out uh, to us about our recent Mockingjay episode, among other things. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com. Up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. We're also available on Stitcher and Spotify and all the other places you get podcasts. Uh, we have a new listener page up there you can go to if you're trying to get people into the show. We've heard from a lot of people who are using us as sort of comfort listening during during the quarantine, and I'm glad that we can be that for you. Um, we've also got a Patreon page up at patreon.com slash overdue pod. If you subscribe there, you can get early access to Genie Babies, our show within a show about the Arabian Nights or the 1001 Nights, depending on how you want to refer to it. And those have been super fun. And the first combo episode of that should hit the feed sometime this month, right? Yeah. If not later this week, then next week. Well, I'll yeah. tweet about it. Yeah. We'll tweet about it. It'll be fine. And then uh, next week, we are going to be covering Deacon King Kong by James McBride. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else? No, that's it. I'm tired of smelling my own sock. (laughs) Yeah. I've been kind of trying to ignore it and mostly succeeding, but it does look like it's been a sock that's been worn all day. My mouth has been on this sock. (laughs) For an hour now. <laughs> the, the things we do for our listeners. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next week, hopefully not through a dirty sock, try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast. You want to talk about your sick rig? Is that interesting for other people? I mean, I'm just looking at my sick rig. It's got glowy lights. It's got a glass front. Runs all my games. Runs all my podcast apps. See, does this feel good to you? It doesn't feel good to me. No, it feels very bad to me. (laughs) You're also going to need to figure your pop screen out because you keep having to touch it.